who came up with the idea of taking 30 plus ingredients, cooking them one by one, then mixing them all together. Most of them are burnt and then adding tortillas and then putting them through this machine that grinds uh, corn and grinding that. And then that is the pace that you say, it's not ready. I have to cook this blob of chilies and seeds and, and nuts and spices. And then after it cooks for 12 hours, that's when I'm going to add the chocolate. Like, how did how did that come about? That to me is very exciting. A little bit more than you know. These are the five mother sauces, and this is how we do it. And there's if you're gonna make a variation, it's a name for it. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 89 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Fermin Nunes from Suerte in Austin, Texas. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with culinary leaders from around the US, talking about their successes and challenges and how their cultural background influences their creative process. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, as well as on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Flavors Unknown. You can find the show notes of these episodes and subscribe to our newsletter on the website flavorsunknown.com. Chef Fermin Nunes made the 2021 Food & Wine Top Chef list. He talks about massa and nixtamilization. His mentor, Rick Lopez from La Condesa in Austin. Some of the unique Mexican culinary techniques and how to cook an amazing fish taco. <music> Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on Flavors Unknown. So first, I have to say congratulations, you know, for making the top food and wine chefs list. Can you take us through like the, the moment when you learn, you know, about the fact that you made that list? So how, how did you feel about it? I mean, I felt great, of course, right? Like, uh, that's one of the things that I, uh, as a chef, you always kind of one, when I was starting to be a cook, like I would always see that list. And, you know, as a young cook, I was like, that'd be cool to get that one day. You know, I think it was one of those things that just felt so far away. And then it felt really felt amazing, not only for me, but for the team that helped me get here too. I think one thing that I never realized when I was a young cook and saw the chefs in the, in the magazine, in the cover and, and be that class, I, I never understood that there was a team behind them. I would just kind of focusing on the chef themselves. And that was one of the things that I had to realize after working, like I'm just the person at the front, but there's a lot of people by my side that helped me get there. And that was one of the first things that I kind of like realized. I got the call and then, you know, I couldn't believe it. Call my mother, call my sister, call my partner, Sam Hellman Mass, who was my, my partner in the restaurant. He saw that like something was up. And he's finished up and he's like, what's wrong? And I told him, he's like, I'm a food and wine business chef 2021. And he's like, what? 
<laughs> like, when do you tell me? It's like, I just found out I had this call. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't want to jinx it. You can't tell anybody. And how was the trip to the trip to Aspen? Aspen is a very, you know, unique part of the world. It's very magical. It feels like a postcard every time you're there. And it's it's always fun to bring your food to different cities. The festival itself, it's, it's huge. And it's it's a fun little thing to do. I was lucky enough to, A, be there for celebration of all the food and wine venue chefs meet the rest of my class for the first time. I brought barbacoa. I put cumbias on. And I had a good time. So, you know, that was, that was a fun little little thing that happened in time. And I will always remember not only being there myself, but also sharing that with Sam, my business partner, Jacqueline, my partner too. And, and also Rene Garza, who is my chef de cuisine, who's been here since day one, started as line cook, lead line cook, butcher, sous chef. And now he he's my right hand in the kitchen. So that was also something very powerful to share that with him and So which connection did you did you make over there or which one which chef did you uh, stay in contact with after Aspen? Honestly, all of them. A lot of them. We still have a group text where we all you know kind of like just give each other props and the the fun part about Aspen too was is 2020 didn't have a festival. They brought the class from 2022 so I was able to meet and connect with them too. It was great to Not only meet the chef, but meet the, meet the person. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, Suerte in, uh, in Austin? What it is about? What kind of food, you know, uh, you, are, you are serving? So Suerte is a restaurant in East Austin that is obsessed with making masa. Masa, to me, is a canvas of Mexican cooking. We get our corn from farms in Texas. We mostly get two corns. One is a white corn that is grown here in Texas. And the other one, it's it's a red corn or blue, depending on kind of what we have available. And we used to source that from, from here and, and in Texas, but 2020 kind of messed things up. And there's only one season for, for growing that kind of corn here in Texas. So you plant it in the beginning of the year, you have to let it grow, and then it has to dry in the field. And you only have one chance to kind of let that go. And, and when 2020 happened around March, which is, the time that you plant the seeds to to harvest the corn around August, September, Jim Richardson, who had been growing our, our bloody butcher red corn, he asked us if we wanted to grow the corn because we pretty much commit to buying all the one he plants. And it was right around March. And we said, absolutely not. We have no idea what's going on. So he kind of stopped that. And then we tried. he tried to plant it again this year. It was a failed crop. So now, right now, we're getting our, our, our blue or red corn from Mexico through our friend Jose from Agropa, who sources a lot of great, unique ingredients from Mexico that make Mexican food great. And and that's kind of a little bit of what we do at Suerte. We focus on making great masa. So can you explain to us what masa is then? And then obviously probably the process of uh, nixtamalization as well. So the process of, of making masa the way we do it at Suerte is we take dry corn kernels, At the end of every night when we're done cooking for service, we take water to a simmer, add a calcium hydroxide, wait for that to dissolve, add the corn, cook it till about a certain doneness, and let it sit in that solution for eight to 12 hours. The next morning, Mari, who's one of our tortilla ladies, Mari or Helen will come in and then rinse that corn very lightly and then grind it through our molina, which is made up of two volcanic stones, one within millimeters of each other. Uh, one is always moving, one is always still. 
What comes out of it is what I call masa 90% of the way. And then we take that dough, we mix it with a little bit of salt and add a little bit of water as needed. And then that masa is uh, waiting for it to be transformed into a lot of different things more than just tortillas, which can be, those are just some things that can be turned with that, with that canvas. If that's what we focus with at Suerte and also use a lot of Mexican cooking techniques. To me, the beauty about Mexican cooking is in the way that you kind of have to go against the grain with everything that you've learned, right? If you take a tomato, the Mexicans will tell you to burn it, turn it black, and then smash it, and then season it with a bunch of lime juice and salt and chilies. That, to me, is a Mexican cooking technique. And rather than focusing on using only true ingredients to Mexico, it's let's find what's available because to me, sometimes the best ingredients, you don't have to travel very far to find them. So we work with a lot of local farms to see what's available and kind of like apply that Mexican uh, cooking technique that represents sort Okay. So, so before we go too much into like the, the Mexican cooking technique, because I'm really, really interested in that part as well. Let's go back to the masa and the nixamization. So you are talking about that you have obviously using different corn, you know, you're talking white corn, the blue corn, the red corn. Is the technique in terms of like the cooking time or anything just change from one variety of corn to another or it's exactly the same process? That's the beautiful thing about cooking. Like I can tell you the, the exact recipe, but to me, recipes are just guidelines, right? Of course, different varieties of corn cook different. That Some of them have more starch. Uh, some are going to be more gelatinous than others. But even just within cooking 25 pounds of corn versus 75 pounds of corn, it's, it's going to be different. So you have to do it by feel. And to me, rather than having a certain time that you have to cook something to, especially with corn, you have to know what you're looking for. So with the white corn, we start checking it about 10 minutes after it's been cooking. And then pretty much five after that. And then after that, it's kind of like, okay, what do we think? How much corn are we cooking? How hot was the water when we dropped it? And one of the things that you're looking for is when you take that corn kernel and you kind of just peel the outside skin, is it sticky enough? Are your fingers going to kind of stick together a little bit? And then when you bite through that corn, is it going to be really hard or is it going to be soft on the outside and then hard on the inside? That's kind of what we're looking for. We want the corn to be about 60 to 70% still raw because it's going to carry cooking. And also you don't want to cook the corn all the way because then you're going to turn with very mushy masa. And, and with the red one is very similar to that as well in the way that you're looking for that outer skin to kind of fall apart and have it be a little bit sticky, not as much as the white one because you're not going to have a lot of gelatin in it. And then the doneness too is, is going to come a little bit faster because that kernel itself, it's a little bit thinner than the white one. So to me, it's like rather than telling you we cook the red one at 15, the blue one at 20, and the white one at 18, it's more about teaching you what to look for Because then I can trust you to do it in any size, in any batch. Okay. So, and again, naive questions for someone who doesn't know too much about the different variety of corn and, and that you were just describing. But is it a question of, you're talking about the end result, but is it a question of end taste? Having, there's different, let's say, tastes from one variety of corn to another. Is it as well because of what you are going to use them for between tortilla versus, I don't know, versus tostadas, you know, and tamales and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I think the way I kind of always answer that question is there's different flours. When you're making bread, if you want to have a certain type of bread, 
you use a certain type of flour, even just a certain type of uh, course that it's ground to. So very similar with that in corn. And just because I like something one way doesn't mean that it has to be that way. But just the way I think for like the, the white corn that we use, it's, it's great for our tortillas because that has a good amount of, of gelatin that comes out after, after it's cooked. So you're going to have a more fluffy, pillowy tortilla that is going to be able to stretch and not break. The red one, it's a little bit sweeter to me. It has a little bit more of like a chocolate-ish taste, and it's great for pairing it with something like where you're going to have lots of cheese. It's going to kind of like just mellow out with with the, like the, the little sweet, the little chocolate notes that you're going to get from the from a yellow, from a red or from a blue corn, right? And, and for tlacoyos too, which is a thick uh, masa that is stuffed with usually some sort of bean or cheese inside. I prefer a, a blue or red on that case because that one is a little bit thicker. So you taste a lot more of what makes that masa great versus if it's just white. White to me tastes a lot like true corn. And I kind of, it's just what else am I going to put with it that it's going to kind of drive me in that direction so how many uh, pounds of or you know of masa do you process every day at uh, at suerte it varies for example last night we cooked a uh, hundred pounds that turns into about 200 pounds of of masa so when you cook the dry corn kernels it's almost double in size and when you when you grind it you kind of end up with a little bit under two times of what you cooked so yesterday was a normal ish day but Sometimes on the weekend, we cook up to 150 pounds of corn. That turns into about 300 pounds of masa. And so how many people do you have in your team doing, you know, those, doing, taking care of that aspect uh, of the masa and as well making, you know, like the tortilla from scratch and so on? There's only really two people that grind the corn. One of them does it five days a week and the other one does it the two days that she's not here. And then... As far as who's making the tortillas, prep, it's about four people. Four people total that, you know, some of them are in the morning, two of them are in the morning, two of them are at night. So I take a lot of pride in having those people kind of lead that program because when we opened the restaurant, I was grinding that corn. So I showed the person that showed them and, and they're still here, you know. So that's that to me, it's like how you create something great by teaching somebody and then letting them just do it over and over again because... In my opinion, you don't get worse at doing something every day. How did you learn yourself doing this? Lots of trial and error. I did a lot of trial and error when I was, you know, planning on opening this restaurant. I would do tests at home. But even when we when we first got in the kitchen here, it was very different from the tests that I did at home because I never cooked that big of a batch. I didn't have the big five horsepower molino that I that I have at the restaurant. So I had to like kind of like relearn everything again. When I would travel to Mexico, I would ask the people on the streets or I would like go to Molinos and stuff like that and ask them. But ultimately, what you usually see in Mexico, whatever is true is only what the last person told you, because everybody has a different technique on, on how to do things. So in a way, I'm kind of contributing to that. My method is different than what someone showed me in the past. And, and whoever I show that to, it'll probably they'll probably make some tweaks and, and changes. So I think that's part of keeping the tradition alive in, in a very funny way. So you are talking about the, the Mexican cooking techniques. So I would like really that we spend a little bit of time. I'm very much interested about this because obviously 
me talking to a lot of chefs, you know, through the podcast, a lot of them went to culinary school, learned, you know, the, the traditional, I would say, French techniques. And I'm always interested when I'm talking with chefs that either traveled or that are immigrants or that are second generation, you know, American, and bringing their own culture to hear about, obviously, cooking techniques, you know, coming from other parts of the world. So it would be great uh, if you could tell us a little bit of, take some examples of, you know, interesting like Mexican cooking techniques. Uh, one of them can be as simple as, as not as simple, but uh, the one that always people think about, it's, it's a mole, right? Like who came up with the idea of taking 30 plus ingredients, cooking them one by one, then mix them in them all together. Most of them are burnt and then adding tortillas and then putting them through this machine that grinds uh, corn and grinding that. And then that is the pace that you say, it's not ready. I have to cook this blob of chilies and seeds and, and nuts and spices. And then after it cooks for 12 hours, that's when I'm going to add the chocolate. Like, how did how did that come about? You know, like that to me is very exciting. A little bit more than you know, these are the five mother sauces, and this is how we do it. And there's if you're gonna make a variation, it's a name for it, right? So I think that's that's exciting for me. And taking that and kind of like making it our own because I feel like unlike many other great cuisines of the world, Mexican cooking is greatly undocumented. There's been a few people that have been putting in that work to kind of like teach us about what Mexican cooking is. There's so much more out there that hasn't been documented. And I think it's mostly because it's just people cooking the way their grandmas used to do and just kind of keeping that tradition alive. And we don't know everything about Mexican food. And I think that is part in, in what's the beauty on it. And we use a lot of different spices. Like we had the Spanish come over and conquer, right? And and then you go through like different parts of Mexico. Like if you go to the Yucatan Peninsula, it's very close to Cuba. So you see a lot of Cuban influences in that, in that way. Mexico, it's not that big, but there's a lot of different kind of climates that are happening all throughout. You go through Chiapas and there's a lot of great beans, very tropical, lots of exciting tropical fruit. And then, you know, you get on a plane two hours later, you're with the most delicious seafood in Ensenada in Baja California with the most beautiful chocolate clams and the way they cook lobster, it's like I've never seen before, right? And then you go to another coast and you're in Oaxaca and it's completely different than you see in that same side of the, the world. So, you know, it's like, it's not, they don't do anything crazy about the lobster, right? But like as a chef, they always teach you to like kind of like Treat lobster very polite and kind of like separate the legs and the tails and then blanch them for five and seven minutes. And like, it's this very precious thing. And then you go to like the lobster town by Ensenada, raw, cut it in half over the charcoal grill, put some salsa on it. Let's go. You have any other example in terms of on, on the technique? One of the things that I always kind of talk about, it's making salsas, right? To me, like there's so many different ways that you can treat a salsa. You can make it raw. You can run all the ingredients and kind of rough chop them, and then you have a really quick salsa. You can take those same ingredients, and you can fry them, and it's a completely different salsa. Like, it's fine with a little bit of oil. And you can take the same ingredients and char them and smash them in a mocajete, and you have three different salsas from the ingredients. And what I kind of have in mind, too, is play around with what's available. So, for example, if I 
have tarragon that grows like crazy in Texas. Why can't I make a tomatillo, red onion, avocado, tarragon salsa? And not call it fusion, just call it, you know, it's our tarragon avocado salsa. What compelled you to, to become a chef if we come back in time? And like most chefs, like I never saw myself following the route of what I saw my friends doing, which was going to school to be a lawyer, an accountant, an architect. I always knew that I wanted to do something creative, but I didn't know what that was. But I definitely knew that I wasn't trying to pursue having a normal job because I was never good at doing those kinds of things. I was never good at school. And not because I tried and I wasn't good, it's because I wasn't, I wasn't invested in it. So I never took the time to actually care. Whenever I was really close to failing, I just like, I knew I could turn it on and, and figure it out, but I didn't want to. That's kind of how I, I, I got into cooking, read, read a book, Kitchen Confidential, and decided to go get a job and, and all those things. But to me, it was, you know, the, the answer where I didn't see myself just living a traditional lifestyle where I went to school and then got a job and worked Monday to Friday, nine to five, and, and did that. I, I, that, I didn't see that for How was your, your experience? So as, you know, Mexican immigrants and like to join, you know, culinary school and, and work in that uh, profession? It's expensive. I'll tell you that. You know, I was paying an international student uh, fees to to go to culinary school, and those are not cheap. But I mean, other than that, it was it was pretty normal. You know what you would expect to go to culinary school. There was nothing crazy that happened in that in that realm. I was just excited to be where I was uh, because I started to fall in love for a lot of the 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 parts of cooking that I had never been exposed to, and that was that was exciting for me. You know, mentorship is obviously very important in that, you know, industry. So who were your, you know, your key mentors and, and what did you learn from them? I think the, the, the one that comes to, to mind when I always think of the chef that I am today, without a doubt, has to be Rick Lopez, which you had on your podcast. Yes. I introduced I, me to you. A, a big chef of, of a big part of, of the chef that I am now is because of what I learned from him and not only just how to cook, but more importantly on how to carry myself as a professional and respect the craft and understand the power of your actions through how you manage and how you talk to people and knowing the importance of having a good attitude when you're coming into work and realizing that food is, is the fun part, but it's not the only part that we do as chefs. And he took the time to not only like teach me how to be a chef, but also show me that he cared. And I kind of pass that on to to the people that I have on my team too. And I am very lucky to have him one kind of be uh, the main mentor that I had to kind of just guide me through it. And when I when I got the call for uh, the best chef, I couldn't tell a lot of people, but I called him and I kind of thanked him for you know leading the way for me because I now see obviously the the, the great power that he had on me when we worked together. You, you are obviously originally from Mexico, then you went to school in San Antonio, you, you live now in Austin, you work in different, you know, restaurants with some having like Asian influence. I'm curious, what's, what's your source of inspiration? And do you bring all those elements and all the ex experience, you know, and influence together in your, in your cooking? Absolutely. I think one of the things that make a great chef is, is their pantry, right? And your pantry is more than what you have in your fridge. It's also what you have in, 
in your head to kind of stock up on and, and go to places when you're trying to think of what you want to add to a dish. And for example, like when I worked at Aruchiko after I left Condesa, I never had tamari of the quality that they had there. So I kind of just kept that in my back pocket as an ingredient to have, you know, and, and same for like white soy that's very Japanese, but we use it here at the restaurant as a way to make our dishes a little bit of what we want to take them rather than just thinking of the route of salt, right? And, and that's one way too that I've also influenced uh, of our cooking through not only my experiences, but the experience of the people that work here in their travels, because we get inspired always to what the Mexican cooking techniques are and, and, and dishes traditional uh, in Mexico, but also what we all like to do outside of work, which is, you know, see what other people are eating on a random Tuesday and wherever in the world that you want to go. So that's, that's, that's really exciting. For example, our, our pastry chef, Derek, just recently went to Oaxaca other long ago and he had like in Oaxaca he had like a little doma thing that was stuffed but it used an hoja santa leaf and he came back and he's doing something very similar to that for New Year's Eve so that's that's exciting right and I, I don't think that opportunity would have come had he not traveled and gone there. Okay so in in your process like curative process are you more like spending time on your own or this is like a collaborative process with your team? It's definitely a collaborative process. So when it's normal times, every Friday we, we do a tasting with all the chefs to kind of like see what is going to change on the menu, what we're all thinking about. And if that's also open for any of the cooks that want to participate in, in that because I think Swarte could only be so much if it's just me putting a dish after a dish after a dish, right? And to me, the power of having great people is also letting them become better and, and flex their memory muscles on other memory muscles, but their, their muscles on how to create dishes. And when we all get to sit down and eat the dishes before they go on the menu, that's exciting because the ultimate product for the customer is going to be better than just one of us kind of putting up a dish to ourselves and then putting it on the menu. I give them direction on where we want to take the menu, okay? We're going to have carrots in season. Let's do a carrot side dish, or we haven't had rabbit on in a while in the menu, so let's put a rabbit tlacoyo. And then I kind of let them take it in whatever direction they have. But I think also I personally work better when I have a little bit of constraints on what I need to do. And I feel that my team does well too, because if I tell them, make me a rabbit lacoyo to put on the menu, it's easier than tell them, let's put something new on the menu. So that's kind of how, how the menu is always driven here at the restaurant. Uh, and it's something that I'm very excited to, to do. So it is like the first step, like ingredients that are available with a season from like the local suppliers that you have. That is, is it the first step on saying like, hey, we should, you know, think about making something around that ingredients, you know, on the menu. And then after that, everyone is coming with their, you know, with their ideas on what it could be or. Absolutely. Because I think that's, you know, the, the best apples are going to be when they're in season, you know, not in the middle of the summer. Going back to like, I work better when there's restraints rather than thinking, what dish can I make? I ate this beautiful apple. Let's make something with it. And then you kind of work backwards. And then it's easier for us to create a first dish that is going to utilize what is also the best in its, in its time. And do your team have like, then are able to carve some time to experiment on top of delivering the service? So how, how does that work? 
yeah, we have a lot of people on our team that allow us to have the flexibility. You know, as managers, you're, you're managing people, but you can also put that into your time in the day where you are working on, on the, on the menu stuff because a big part of our jobs and, and we should allow ourselves to have that time to do so. And it shouldn't be a thing that we do after we do our jobs. Quote unquote. So do you still have time you for you to like to, to explore? I have time to do a podcast. <laughs> I have time to make food. That's a good answer. <laughs> What is important, most important for you? Like, is it technique or creativity? Technique for sure. I think if you, if you don't have technique, you can't be creative. I would like to pick your brain. I ask that always, like uh, at all the, the guests that come on the, on the podcast. What would be your suggestion? So it's not like a recipe in details. It's more a guideline, you know, for someone like myself, you know, like a food enthusiast to create maybe, you know, maybe thinking, uh, I was thinking a taco, maybe it could be a fish taco, you know, uh, but your, your style. So Fermin's style. What I've really been craving lately is things grilled over charcoal. We're opening a new seafood restaurant with a Mexican point of view, maybe something around April-ish next year. And we're going to have a big charcoal grill. So I've been really into that. And to me, rather than like giving you a recipe, like give you a guideline of what to do. For fish taco, like I kind of want to have the mindset of tortilla with a fried fish or like a single piece taco. To me, like let's do a whole grilled fish over charcoal. You know, make a red chili marinade with a little bit of oil, a little bit of chilies, maybe some fried garlic, brush it on the fish, cook it, you know, skin side down first and flip it just to finish cooking on the other side. Make some tortillas, have them on the side and pickles, whatever kind of pickles you want to have. Pickle red onion with a little bit of habanero if you like spicy or white onions with a little bit of uh, jalapenos that are not too spicy and oregano, lots of lime juice and black pepper, some sliced avocados some lime, some charred tomato salsa, and kind of like just serve everything on a platter with tortillas. And just because the tacos are not assembled doesn't mean that they can't become tacos. So that's kind of the advice I would give you, just like grill some, some big fish and then, and then just kind of like make whatever tacos you want. I don't like to grill really big fishes because I think when they're a little bit smaller, they're easier to, to maneuver on, on a charcoal, especially if you don't have like the whole big kitchen equipment. But something like a vermilion snapper, one to one and a half pounds like that would be that would be very tasty on the grill and so you mentioned jalapeno and habanero for you know the you know what's going to be with the sh the fish you were talking about the red salsa so this is what kind of chili do you use for that part is it the habanero as well or you can use you know if you want it spicy use serranos if you can get your hands on some ají amarillos throw that in there uh if you can't get any high quality like fresh peppers throw some dried arbols in there uh so there's like plenty of different ways to to go about it it's kind of whatever route you want to take it okay thank you chef so let's let's switch to the uh, the rapid fire question before i let you go so what is like the food smell that reminds you of uh, your childhood i was a very picky eater but i think when we opened suerte And I smelled the Nixamalized corn in the kitchen in that big batch for the first time. It reminded me of going to pick up tortillas at the tortilla with my mom, which is something I hadn't smelled in such a long time. And it kind of brought me back. And it was a nice little kind of like 
home feeling without being when, when we first cooked the big batch. So you and I are going in on a tasting tour in Austin. So what are like the five spots you will take me to? Besides Suerte, obviously, it's, it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely Nixta. We're gonna do, you know, some some tacos there. Aviary. It's also it's most also a, a, a very dear spot of me of mine. Kanje. It's another new one uh, that just opened. Caribbean food, outstanding flavor. Fields is I think another highly underrated beer restaurant kind of place that I love going to, and it's been open for at least ten years by now. And then we're gonna also go to TLV. They're making outstanding. Uh, Israeli food, uh, and I was just there not that long ago, like a week, week ago. So it's, those are always like kind of on my rotation. What's your your favorite guilty pleasure food? God, I think you know every time I travel outside of the, the country, I don't always do this, but I always crave a water burger. I don't know why, but it's like to me that tastes like so American. After I'm gone for a little bit, it's the thing I crave the most, but I don't always actually go for it because I don't like how I feel the day after. <laughs> okay. So we talk about uh, cookbooks before we uh, we recorded the you know the episodes here. So what's are like the three cookbooks that inspire you the most? I think one that changed that was kind of like the first book that I saw that I was like, "Oh shit, this is like this is some cool stuff happening." And I was really young and and cooking and it was by Michel Richard, Happy in the Kitchen. Nobody was kind of cooking like he was in that cookbook at the time when it came out. So that was a really fun one. On the Line is one that we talked about for opening because it's, to me, it's more than just a cookbook. It's kind of like a guideline and a blueprint to what Liberty Inn is. And then, I don't know, if I had to choose one more, it would be something by Dana Kennedy for early of her early works. Those are always good for me to kind of just reference to make sure I'm not veering too far from what I should be doing as far as Mexican food. She always kind of like reels me in and tells me like, no, for me, that's too crazy. Don't do that. This is how a green mold should be. And then I kind of still veer off, but just a little bit. Yeah, tweak. Okay. The last one, what's the biggest pet peeves in the kitchen for you? Uh, when people don't fold their towels. Okay. Very good, Chef. Thank you so much for for accepting me on the show. I know you are very busy, so it's it's great to um, finally you know have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening today. You can find the show notes of this episode at flavorsunknown.com. Please sign up for our newsletter, as you do not want to miss any upcoming episode. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Next week, my guest will be Masako Morishita from Washington, D.C., who will talk about Japanese comfort food and her new gig at Maxwell Park. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.